Guys, welcome to Covenant City Church for another Sunday, another time where we uh, come and are privileged to worship our God. Um, join me in prayer before we enter our call to worship, before we start our call to worship and enter into worship today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity, for another time to come and worship you as God, as Savior, as Protector, as Provider, but first and foremost, as our Father. That is the way you've taught us to address you in the New Testament. That is the way our Savior addresses you in the New Testament. And Lord, that is the way you enjoy us to address you as Father. And as we approach you, um, um, our Lord, our Master, but first and foremost, our Father, let us come as children, not as those who come based on the merit of our performance, like employees do, but as children who can claim more than what we deserve, who come to you based on family, not based on merit, not based on what we've earned, but because we're family. And know that this privilege was given to us by your son who died in our place that we may be adopted as your children and we are forever grateful and joyful that we may have this treasure of our father of an eternal glorious relationship with you because you have died for us. Thank you, Lord, and take us, let us now claim full advantage, claim full um, demand of what is rightfully ours as your children. Not because we've earned it, but because it has been given to us by a Savior. Thank you for who you are, and let us now come to you and worship and sing to you as joyful children would to their loving Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me as we read together our call to worship today, uh, taken from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I invite you to stand, and um, let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the, and the word, word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's pray again. Father, you sent your Son, who from the beginning was with you, the Word, the Logos, the one who became flesh and pursued us and died for us. Thank you for this mercy and grace. Let us now sing and boast to the world that this is indeed our loving God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh 
Surrender your life upon 
Father, we don't know why we should gain from what you have earned. But now because of that, we come to you with full assurance, knowing that you are our loving Father. Thank you for this mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, it's good and right for the gospel to continually grow in our hearts as we are reminded of how far we fall short of his glory, but also of how deeply our Father loves us and how deeply he will pursue us. See, we often think of confession of sin as a time where we just tell God the things that we've done wrong um, and how we have fallen short from his standards, from his glory. And that's, that's true. That is a part of what confessing our sins is about. But because of the mercy of God, because of grace, because of the gospel, because of the cross, we can let the confession of sin be a time not primarily of how far we've fallen short, but as how far our God will pursue us. A friend of mine in the U.S., she was a cancer survivor, um, and she went to a hospital in, in Memphis, Tennessee, which where I was uh, at, um, called St. Jude, which is specifically a hospital that specializes uh, to treat cancer in, in children. And she was healed from it. Um, the doctors did a good job. The hospital is, is a very good hospital, but she has a scar right here in her head. Um, and every time she talks about it, and people ask her about it, um, when her friends do, or when she talks about her childhood experience of this sur surviving cancer, she would describe the scar in a proud way, almost. She would describe the scar with joy, um, with, with glee, because the scar is not primarily a reminder of how bad her cancer is, but it's a reminder of her of how well the hospital cared for her. It's a reminder of how far the doctors would go to save her. See, when Christ died for our sins, yes, we still live in a broken world and we still are scarred because we're sinful and we live in a sinful world. But ultimately, the Bible says, death no longer has its sting on us. We are saved from, from the death that is due to us. And like my friend, because of the gospel of grace, when we talk about our scars, when we confess to God our sins, it's not just primarily about how bad we are but it's about how much God loves and cares for us. You see, confession of sin because of the cross becomes a proclamation of God's grace. It becomes a proclamation of how far, how deep he would go to save us and love us. So that's why we're confessing our sin. Um, and in that attitude, in that perspective of confession, I invite you to join with me and read together out loud <coughs> our confession of sin for this week. Read with me. O changeless God, under the conviction of the Spirit, I learn that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O oh, wretched man that I am. O oh, Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I often use your grace to excuse my own sin. I often claim to love biblical preaching, churches, and fellow Christians, but I often live in an unholy manner. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, filled with pride, often thinking that I have nothing to repent from. 
My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. Father, hear now our silent individual prayers of confession. Father, what a blessed assurance it is we have in Christ. What divine foretaste of what is to come, a communion with you in your glorious divine. We thank you for this gift of love and mercy and righteousness. And now we can confess our sins joyfully, boldly, courageously as a proclamation, not ultimately of how bad we are, it is that, but ultimately of how far the God of the universe would go to pursue us. Thank you for this mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, hear now our assurance of pardon taken from John chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Pray with me again. Lord, thank you for this grace, again, that now we can call you Abba, Father. We can call you Dad, and you call us sons, heirs, daughters, your children. Thank you, and now, Father, let us sing of this grace and mercy once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue to sing our song. Perfect submission. All is that. 
Read aloud with me our confession of faith this week, taken from the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I, I believe, believe in God, God the Father, Father Almighty, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third, the third day, day he rose, rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, Shiha. Friends, as we enter into a time of our gifts and offering, giving to him what is rightfully his, let us remain in a posture of worship as we do so. Giving to God is the duty and delight for all of his children everywhere. But giving to God and his kingdom work specifically through Covenant City Church is the duty and delight for Covenant City Church members. If you are not yet a member of Covenant City Church, please let the, the offering bag pass by you if you so choose to do. Um, let me pray into this time. Lord, as we come to you and we give to you what is rightfully yours. Uh, we communicate to you that we trust you more than we do our resources. We trust you and we love you and we worship you more than we worship the thing and the currency that so often is used to secure our future um, because we trust and obey you first and foremost. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you that we can give to your kingdom work and let it be used uh, for the flourishing of your, uh, your, your, your people here and also this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Father, we pray that the resources you have entrusted us with, that it may be used uh, in this church and also outside of this church uh, for your city, for the kingdom work there. And Father, I pray, uh, Lord, for Jakarta, that the gospel may never be assumed in the churches that are in the city and in this country. An assumed gospel leads to the disappearance of it. May it always be in the forefront of those who preach your word, those who preach the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. Father, I beg you um, that we would be reminded of this blessed assurance that we are sealed by the blood of Christ and that it would be communicated clearly every Sunday at your churches uh, here in this city, that our, your children may be rejuvenated and may um, be reminded of your love and continue to pursue you in their weeks. Lord, I pray that the resources you've entrusted us with um, quickly, yet timely and strategically, uh, become a source of blessing to the city, that we may be a church that has in our minds the hearts and the welfare of her city and country. And Lord, that the gospel may go forth, not only with our words, but also in our deeds, portraying a God who was rich, who became poor and sacrificed and died for others. May we also portray that to those in the city. And Lord, I pray again as we approach uh, the election season uh, that it may be done in an orderly manner with integrity, both in the sides of those choosing and those who are being chosen, that they may um, uh, also have uh, the city, the people in their minds and as priority. Also, Father, guard the hearts of those uh, that are governing your church. Um, Lord, as we labor alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, be with us and uh, help us govern your church, your institution, uh, your bride as described in, your, in the Bible. Um, and we can be part of redeeming all of creation as far as the curse is found. And Lord, also protect us that although we are involved in, um, um, in culture and engage it, that you would protect us and, and remind us that our ultimate hope is not found in any human government, but in a kingdom that is to come. Until then, let us labor, let us proclaim the, proclaim the gospel in word and in deed um, until you come again. Uh, but, but Father, let us know and be assured that it is in you we find our hope. It is in your kingdom, not any nation, we find ultimate um, um, desires uh, in, Father. And um, let us work and let your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done until your kingdom come again. And Lord, as we close this time of intercessory prayer together, uh, let us pray out loud the way you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, before our announcements and our sermon today, I invite you to stand up and greet each other in the name of the Lord.
All right, guys, a few announcements uh, for today. I'm going to be doing it. Um, I apparently made a mistake two weeks ago when I did the announcements. I said that the community groups is on Tuesdays. It's actually on Thursdays. Sorry about that. But uh, yes, we do have three community groups. Two of them meet on Thursdays um, at 7 p.m., and the other one meets on a Tuesday, also at 7 p.m. The two that meet, um, are, one of them is in Intercon, uh, which is West Jakarta. Uh, if you are living in that, if you live in that area or work in that area and want to join that community group, please fill out uh, a connect card. I don't have one on me right now, but on, in the desk outside, there's a connect card. Just fill out your information, tell us who you are, tell us how to get in touch with you, and we'll connect you to the community group leader there. He can give you the details for where and when they meet. The second one is at Menthang. I know a lot of you work there. Um, uh, if you do or you live there, go to that community group. I think um, it, it's a really cool one to check out. Um, it's in one of our members' houses there, and if you, if you want to go to that one, let us know that you do, and also give information so we'll contact you. And if you're married, um, and you want to join a married couples community group, we'd love to have you. Uh, we meet every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, we provide dinner every other night on Tuesdays for the married couple. Thank you, Jackie. Um, and we meet in Botanica apartment, so we'd love for you guys to come and join us and uh, have fellowship with us. And sometimes we do fun things. I know that on Saturday, a lot of you guys did a combined uh, community group together and played board games and Jack cooked or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that was fun. Um, the other last announcement I have is membership class. Today is our last out of three series of our membership class. If you have been going to them, I invite you to, to go again today. Um, it will be our last one. If you haven't been going to them, but are just curious in general about what the church is about, who we are, what does it mean to become a member, why become a member, all those kinds of things. I invite you to come. We, we ordered a lot of extra food, so at least there's free lunch. Uh, come after church. We'll meet at about 12.20 after service ends at 12 on that end, and I'll, 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 I'll give you enough, a presentation of who we are, um, and it'll last for about an hour and 15 minutes, okay, an hour, an hour and a half at most. So we'd love for you guys to come and join us in that. All right? So for the scripture reading today, I want to invite Jesse up to read our passage. Our sermon today will be taken from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Thus says the Lord. Steph. All right, guys, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Galatians uh, this week. And we are, again, over halfway. And if you've been with us in the past, as we talk about this series, you probably have learned at this point the context of what's going on in Galatia. And the context is this, that this is a letter... Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. And the reason of why he wrote this letter is because at that time there was a group called the Circumcision Group. This group came into that region 
and started preaching what Paul calls a false gospel. They preached legalism. Legalism is the philosophy that we can earn our status with God, we can manipulate our identity in relation to God through our personal obedience, through obeying the legal qualifications of the law. It says that God loves us when we are more obedient. And we also talked about how a lot of Christians today, maybe among us, I know I do, struggle with legalism every day. We believe that God loves us more when we are more obedient. We believe God loves us less when we become less obedient. We talked about how we often believe that our status as God's child is dependent, we believe often, upon how well we perform. That my standing before God lies on the ability for me to obey as if the blood of Christ was strong enough to cleanse me on the get-go, but from there on out, it's up to me to clean myself up, right? We often live like that, and Paul says, when we live like that, when we live with this kind of burden on our shoulders, that's not Christianity. That, Paul says, is slavery. This is not how Christians ultimately live. But is this not how we often feel? Is this not how Christianity often looks like for the outsider who's looking in? Like slavery, doesn't it? How many Christians, maybe us here today, feel like their Christian walks are full of burdens? How many of us live under the chains of performance? Because we've been taught that our obedience to the law can somehow earn or manipulate how God views us. And many people who don't know Christ look into our lives and how, does it, how do you think that portrays our God to them? Not as a father, but as a slave master, almost to say. Because we're often driven by guilt. Our sermon Sunday mornings are filled with guilt-driven messages. The demeanor is always ridden with guilt, as if we're always reaching but never resting. People look from the outside in and they say, this is a do-better, be-better religion is what it is. Paul says, that's not Christianity. That's so tiring. To live like that misrepresents our God and puts us back into slavery. So let's look into our passage today and see how Paul describes Christians are supposed to live their lives and are supposed to walk on this earth, not primarily as slaves to a heavenly master, but as sons to a heavenly father. There's three things I want to point out today. How we live in slavery how we live as sons, how and why we became sons. Three things I want to point out. First thing, how we live in slavery. Second, how we live as sons. And last, how and why we became sons. Pray with me before we enter into our first point. Father, the chains of legalism, the bondage of performance go so deep and prize into the darkest parts of our hearts that we often don't even realize we're putting ourselves in it. And Lord, the call to freedom isn't the call to less obedience. It's the call for joyful, free obedience, for joyful, delightful obedience. Lord, and as we move forward into becoming obedient children, um, uh, speak to us your mercy and reveal to us who we are and who you are to us as you have revealed yourself to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first point, how we as Christians often still live in slavery. 
When Elena, my daughter, I feel like she's making every single sermon analogy at this point, but that's all right. That's what happens when you have a child. When Elena grows up, I want to be a lot of things to her. I want to be her teacher, right? When she comes home and she has homework from school and, you know, she has questions that aren't related to math that I can answer, um, I would love to be her teacher. Um, I want to be her coach. I played tennis growing up, so I would love for her to enjoy the same sport I did if she likes. So I'll go out there and coach her tennis. I'll be her chef. I want to cook for her. It might not be very good, but I'm going to do it anyways, and she's going to eat it and like it. <laughs> um, I'm going to be her financial provider, right? I'm going to take care of her when she's sick. I'm going to put on a lot of hats. I'm going to play a lot of different roles as she grows up. But although I want to be all those things to her, I don't want any of those things to be the ultimate way of how she views me. Yes, I'll teach her things, but I don't want her to call me professor. Yes, I'll coach her tennis, but I don't want her to call me coach. Yes, I'll cook and provide for her financially and take care of her if she's sick, but I don't want her to call me Chef Tazar. Actually, that doesn't sound too bad. Um, or ATM Tazar, or Dr. Tazar, right? Although I will play different roles in her life, there's one name I want her to always call me as, and that's Dad. That's father. The one difference this makes means the world to me. Why? Because I want her to know that I'm doing all these things. I'm coaching her. I'm providing for her. I'm, I'm cooking for her. I'm doing all these things as her father, not as her employee, not as her service provider. It's a big difference. Service providers, if I am just her coach, if I'm just her doctor, what I want for my service is money. I want something in return, right? But a father serves their child not to get something out of them, but it's simply because she's my child. What I own, what a father owns, is hers anyways, right? What is mine is hers. She doesn't need to pay for that. I don't want Elena at the end of the day to come up to me and say, hey dad, thanks for driving me to school today. You know, I've noticed gas prices is 32,000 um, per, uh, per liter, and based on that calculation, I owe you about 7,000 rupiah. Um, so I'll pay, I'll pay that at the end of the day. I don't want her to say that, because my gas is her gas. Hey, Dad, thanks for breakfast this morning. Um, just put it on my tab. I'll, I'll pay at the end of the week. You know, tomorrow, can we do something less expensive? I don't know if I can afford you know, all, this, all this food you're giving me. I don't want her to do that, because my food is her food. What is mine is hers. She doesn't need to pay for my services. I'm her father. It's important that although I'll put different hats and play different roles in her life, she primarily calls me father. Paul is saying this is how God wants to relate to Christians, ultimately, primarily as father. Yes, God is described in many ways. In the Old Testament, he has 72 different titles. In New Testament, he has more names called of him. Provider, protector, master, lord, shepherd, healer. But there's one title, out of all those roles he plays, Jesus says to address him primarily as, which is Father. In the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Our Father who art in heaven. Not a provider, not a protector. He is provider, he is protector. But Jesus says, ultimately call him Father. He is your dad, you are his child. So the way we relate to him is not ultimately as obedient slaves do to a slave master, to earn something from them, 
not as a service provider, but as obedient child to a loving father, because all he is, is yours. What is this treasure? What is this thing that belongs to God that is already yours to where you don't have to work for it anymore? The Bible says it is not money. He doesn't promise you earthly success. He doesn't promise you a longer earthly life. What he gives you, what he says is already yours, is to be with him forever in glory. This is the treasure God says you already have as Christians, as my children. This is yours. You don't have to work to earn it anymore. You don't have to pay for it. I've paid for it, and I'm giving it to you. Claim it. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 19. What is the promise God promises his children? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The sons of God has eternal glory with the Father, has eternal salvation, has eternal life. You don't need to work for it anymore. That's what being a child means. Look at verse 1. A child is an heir. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Well, let's get into that more later. But for now, know that God calls his sons as heirs. Everything that's his belongs to us. Now, we're described as sons, not as daughters, not because Christianity is a sexist religion, as we just talked about last week. Back in the day, the oldest son is the one who gets the inheritance from the father. When Paul says we are sons, he's using that cultural context to tell us the relationship we have with the father. We are sons. We are heirs to what, the fa- what is the father's is also ours. What Paul is saying, both women and men can become sons, see, can become heirs of the father. He's equating men and, men and male and female, contrary to the day. He's saying that everyone has the right, no matter what your gender is, everyone has the right to become sons, heirs, to the Father, to God. But often, Paul says, children, heirs, live like slaves. Sometimes they live no differently than a slave. Let's look at verse 2 to 3. But he, the child who lives like a slave, is under guardians and managers, which is the law, until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We are children, we are heirs, but often we enslave ourselves, we limit the benefits of enjoying God as our Father, as if there's something else managing us, as if there's something else guarding us, which is God's laws. God's children limit their access to their Father because they're failure to obey the law, oftentimes. And when we do that, we treat ourselves like slaves, like a hired hand, not as children, as if we have to pay God for who he is to us. Look at verse 3. We often enslave ourselves to the elementary principles of the world. What is Paul referring to here is to the legalism that the circumcision group preached to the Galatian church, right? He's telling them, you have the right to be God's people. You have the right to be children of God if you obey the law, like we do. This is the elementary principle of the world that says you can only demand from God as much as you have earned. This is not how children live, Paul says. This is how slaves live. 
This is how service providers relate to their master, not how a child relates to their father. Sons live in a completely different set of principles, which will lead us to our second point. How do we, Christians, no longer live as slaves to a master? Yes, God is our master. Yes, God is our provider, but he's ultimately father. How do Christians live to God as father? Look at the end of verse 5. We have received adoptions as sons, verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you no longer, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Christians in Galatia did not live like sons. A lot of us here today are not living like sons. The Christians in Galatia were bogged down because they failed to obey all of God's laws. And they somehow think that limits their access to God. A lot of us here today, I'm sure, I know I do, often feel like we don't have the right to claim all of who God is because we have failed in obeying his laws. How are we living? We who claim salvation through Christ, we who claim that we have received Christ as Lord and Savior, are we truly living in the fullness of freedom and joy of our sonship? Or are we too often limited by the transactional principles of this world that says you can only demand more, only demand what you earned? Let's take a deep look at this passage to see how children often fall back into slavery, how sons of God, maybe us sitting here today, enslave ourselves and limit our joy in this Christian walk. We usually do this in three ways. Sons enslave themselves to the law. Sons live like slaves, usually in three ways. One, we'll go through it again, but let me just run through it now. One, sons fall back into the slavery of the law and live like slaves by only demanding from the Father what we feel like we've earned. Sons live like slaves when we only demand from the Father what we feel like we've earned. Two, sons live like slaves when we think obedience is something that we do rather than someone we are. That's horrible English, but it gets a point across, okay? Sons live like slaves when we think that our obedience is something that we do rather than someone we are. Three, sons live like slaves when we allow our peace to be ruled by our performance. I'm gonna explain them one by one, but let me just repeat them again. We live like slaves when we only demand from our Father what we feel like we've earned, when we think obedience is something we do rather than someone we are, and when we allow our peace to be ruled by our performance. Let's talk about the first one. The first way we fall back as sons into slavery is that we only demand from God what we feel like we've earned. See, as we mentioned earlier, a servant, a slave, obeys the master to earn something. But a child doesn't do that. A son, an heir, they can demand more from their father than what they have actually earned. Look, I love Ahok, I really do. But I don't care how good of a job Ahok does in fixing the city. I don't care how well he performs. I don't care how much he does to, to revive Jakarta. No matter what he does, he will never, ever, ever, ever earn the right to jump into Jokowi's bed at the middle of the night and waking him up for a glass of water. 
No matter how well Ahok performs his job, he will never earn the right to wake Jokowi up in the middle of the night and ask him for a hug because he's had a nightmare. He will never earn that, no matter how well he performs. But you know who can demand that? You know who has that right? Jokowi's daughter. Jokowi's son. They can do that. Have they earned it? Probably not. They probably threw tantrums that day. They probably were being very bad kids that day. But by virtue of being his child, they can claim more from their father than what they have earned. See, children can demand that by virtue of being a child. Is this how we treat God? Do we come to him like a child, demanding intimacy so boldly, so presumptuously, so innocently, so undeservingly, almost to a point where outsiders look in and say, can they do that? Can someone really be that close to God? That seems a little bit too intimate for me. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are called to approach our Father in heaven, not with a whisper, not with a murmur, not with a timid request, not by fearfully tugging on his arm, hoping that he will care, but you have been given the permission to shout at him, to yell out towards him, to wake him up at the middle of the night, so to speak and demand his attention, and cry, Abba, Father, even on days that you don't deserve it. Because you're not a slave, you're not a service provider. You are his son. Why do we have the right to do this? Look at the beginning of verse 6. Simply because we are sons. Not because you performed, not because you've been obedient, not because you've lived disciplined lives, not because of our spiritual points, not because we have our lives figured out and all together, but because we're sons. You have the right to demand from your father more than what you have earned. He has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Are we taking full advantage of this? Because this is a right we have as children. Or are we still living our Christian lives in slavery? Demanding from our Father only that which we feel like we have earned, based on how good of a job we feel like we've done that day, like a hired hand. Don't live as slaves. Live as children. Second, sons fall back into slavery when we think that our obedience is something we do rather than someone we are. When we think that obedience is something we do rather than someone we are. Obedient servants obey their masters because it's their job. It's what they do. Obedient children obeys their parents because it's who they are. It's their, their, their children. When we think of Christianity as something we do, we fall back into slavery. We're not, we don't worship Sunday morning. We are Sunday morning worshipers. You see, being prayerful isn't something we do. It's who we are. Being studiers and lovers of God's word isn't something we do. It's who we are. Being battlers of sin and pursuers of holiness, it's not something we do. It's who we are. Being those who proclaim the gospel to the world out there, that's not something we do. That's who we are as children. Hired hands work because it's what they do. Children obey because it's who they are. It's our identity in Christ. We are sons of God, therefore, 
We are worshipers of God. We are seekers of holiness. We are lovers of, this, uh, of, of his word. We are proclaimers of the gospel. We don't obey our father to earn something from a master. We obey him because he's our father. It's our identity. Verse 1 says, you are a child. Verse 6 says, you are a son. Verse 7 says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. Third, children fall back into slavery when we allow our peace to be ruled by our performance. We fall back into slavery when we allow our peace to be ruled by our performance. See, when we take full advantage of our sonship, we'll experience what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, a peace that is beyond understanding. How? Because our identity as the Son of God protects us, protects us from going too high and falling too low. Verse 3, you're no longer enslaved by the elementary principles of the world, the ways that says success and failures ultimately dictate who you are. Our accomplishments won't lure us into the heights of pride. Why should it? Think about it. If you truly believe that you are the son of the living God, what sort of personal accomplishment or earthly compliment can ever bring you to a higher position than who you already are? What type of personal success, what type of compliment can make the Son of God fall into pride? You're already a Son of God. What higher status is there? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how people have complimented you. You are a Son of God. You're much more valuable than whatever success or compliment this world gives you. You're the Son of God. But it also protects us from falling too low. You're the Son of God. What sort of personal failure or insult has the power to bring you to ultimate misery? Yes, you'll be saddened by it. I'm saddened by it. Yes, it hurts. But in the sadness, remind yourself what God calls you. He says, don't forget, you're my son. You're my son. These failures, these insults, what you have done or what others have done to you, they don't ultimately define who you are. I tell you who you are, and you're my son. He gives you the right to claim it. He has called you son. So let's recap of how sons often live like slaves. One, or how rather how sons can live like sons and no longer like slaves. One, by demanding more from our father than what we feel like we've earned. We become sons and less like slaves when we demand more from our father than what we feel like we've earned. Fight the temptation and pride of approaching him based only on your performance. Go to him, pester him, cry to him, wake him up in the middle of the night, even after you've had a bad day, even after you've fallen into sin. Demand his attention. He wants you to. You're his child. Two, by obeying him, living your Christian lives, living our Christian lives, not as something that we do, but because it's who we are. We can live more like children of God and less like slaves when our obedience are driven by our new identities as the children of God, not as a way to earn something from him, not as a way to bargain, say, if I do this, you do that. You've done this, so I'll do this. Why did you do this? I've done that. It's not a transactional relationship. He's your father. You're his son. And third, 
by allowing our sonship to give us a peace that is beyond understanding, by truly grasping onto it, take full advantage of who you are. Don't be shaken left and right, up and down by personal success and personal failures, but by living in the reality that no accomplishment is so high and no failure is so low to shake you from who you really are, the Son of God. Now, let me ask once again, have we truly taken advantage of our sonship? Have we truly grasped and claimed what is ours? Or are we still demanding from God only what we feel like we deserve? Are we obeying him as a means to earn something? Are we allowing our personal success and failures to define us? Or are we asking for what we have? Not riches, not a long earthly life, not success, worldly success, but who he is and how he's given himself to you. That's your treasure. That's what he has given you. Access to him, the fullness of who he is. You've been promised that. You've been given that as son. I know I don't. I often fail and I often live like a slave. I'm often swayed by legalism and feel like I'm not worthy to claim my sonship so boldly because, after all, who am I? I failed. I've, I've disobeyed God every day. I disobeyed God maybe a thousand times before I got to church. And this is the same question that I think withholds a lot of us from claiming our full sonship. I was once talking to someone from another religion a long time ago about Christianity. And we couldn't move forward in our conversation because he was so hung up in the fact that Christians have the audacity, have the, the, the guts to call God with the intimate term father. He says, how dare you? Literally spent over an hour just talking about this. How, how dare you? How presumptuous of you? Who do you think you are? What makes you so special that God claims you as his son? I couldn't even get to the gospel because he, he wouldn't even take that part. And I think that's how a lot of us feels, although we might not say it, but it, it is how I feel a lot of times. Who, who am I to claim this sort of intimacy with the Father? Who am I to claim such sonship? Which leads us to our last point, how and why we became sons. How and why we became sons. In this last point, I want to point us to two things. First is how we became sons, and two is why we became sons. Two different things related to each other, but I think seeing the way this passage addresses these two questions will, I pray, further launch us into believing our sonship. How we became sons and why we became sons. First one, how we became sons. See, for many of us, again, the biggest hesitance of claiming the full benefits of our sonships, as we talked about in point number two, is not because we forgot how a child and a father relate to one another. We know how children relate to the father, to a father. But I think the reason why we don't claim the fullness of our sonship and we often fall back into slavery is because we don't feel like we deserve it. Like the guy that asked earlier who we are, who are we to claim that? But look at how God says we become sons. It's not because we are more spiritual than others. It's not because you have done more than others. But look at verses 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us so that we can be adopted as sons. We can claim sonship. We can claim to be the children of God, to be heirs of the living God. Not because we earn it ourselves, but because somebody else has given that right to us. It's a gift. Remember what legalism says? Your legal status before God is based upon your obedience. This is what the gospel says. Your legal status before God is based upon Jesus' obedience. Legalism says your status before God is based on your obedience. The gospel says, no, it's not. It's based on Jesus' obedience. Okay, there's a true story that I want to share because I think it um, portrays well the gospel in the way it's portrayed in our passage today. There's a true story of a 60-year-old man who walked through a path called Camino de Santiago. You like that accent? <laughs> I practiced like two hours for that accent, not it. He walked through a path called Camino de Santiago, which is a path that extends from France to Spain. It's called the Way to Santiago, right? And um, believe it or not, it's a challenge that many people do once in their life. It's like, a, it's like a bucket list that a lot of people have. The length of it is 780 kilometers long. So imagine Jakarta to Surabaya. And this person, 60-year-old man, walked it by foot. It took him over 30 days, and he did it all by foot. Camped everything. Why would this guy do this? Because the background story is he had a son who attempted to walk this path a year before the father walked. And his son died trying to undertake this challenge. His father, in love of his son, wanting to honor his son, um, walked this path to give the benefit of what he has done and claim his success of completing this task to his son. Let, let, me, let me share what I mean. This 60-year-old man walked the distance of Jakarta Surabaya in honor of his son. And at the end of the journey, there's this booth, there's this office. And whoever accomplishes this challenge, whoever does this walk from beginning at the starting point to the end, deserves two things. They get a stamp on their passport that says they've, they've accomplished it. And the other thing is they get a certificate that says they've accomplished the walk, Camino uh, de Santiago, and, then, and they put their name down, right? So a stamp on the passport and a certificate. And at the end of the journey, we find out why the father did it. At the end of the journey, when the person asked for the father's passport, he didn't give them his passport. He gave them his son's passport. And he said, I want you to put the stamp on my son's passport. I want you to give what I have earned to him. And then when the guy said, what's your name? And we put it on the certificate. He said, I don't want you to put my name down on the certificate. I want you to put my son's name down on the certificate. Because I want to give him the credit for what I have done. Here's how I feel like this story explains the gospel as it is presented in verses 4 and 5 that we just talked about very well. Think about this. In order for the father to get the stamp, in order for the father to get his name written down on the, on the certificate, he had to start where his son would have started, all the way in France. He had to start at the starting point. And he had to walk, right? He couldn't have bought, bought a plane ticket and landed in Santiago and say, hey, I'm here, can you stamp it? No. To earn that right, he had to start where his son started. 
And he couldn't have rented a motorcycle he start, where he started and said, okay, let me rent a motorcycle and just drive my way through. No, he had to walk it. Because unless he started where his son started, and unless he walked it under the same laws that his son was under, he does not have the right to earn that stamp and get that name on the certificate, which he then will give to his son. Look at what verse 4 says. Jesus was born of a woman as a baby child. Jesus, one, started where we started. He couldn't cheat. He had to start in the same starting line that we all started. He couldn't just fly into the end. And also verse 4, what does it say? He was born under the law. He had to fulfill the race under the same rules that we are under, under the same limitations as human. You see, he couldn't have cheated, or else he couldn't have earned the righteousness at the end of the road that he will then give to us. He has to start, like the father in the story, where the son started, where we started, and he had to follow the rules that we have to follow with the limitations we have as humans. That's why he became man. Let's look at verse 4 and 5 again in light of that context. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, starting where he started, born under the law, under the rules that we are under. Why? So that at the end of the road, he can redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. This is how we're saved, by God becoming man. He started where we started. He was under the same limitations that we have, but yet he accomplished it without sin. But yet he ran the full race blamelessly. The book of Hebrews says he was without sin. He was pure. Started where we started, under the same limitations that we have, yet was without sin. And for him, it wasn't a 30-day walk. It was about 30 years of life, being tempted with the same temptations we are being tempted by, living in the same sinful world we are living in, around the same sinful people we are around, with the same limitations that we have as a human being, but yet he completed it perfectly. And to give us the credit, he didn't just simply give the Father our passport. He climbed on a cross, and he willingly got nailed to it so that he can give to us the reward that he has earned by accomplishing the task that we should have accomplished. And then he wrote our names down on the certificate that he deserves when, verse 4 says, when he sent his spirit into our hearts. A certificate that says your name on it with the title, Son of God. This is how you became sons. Because the true and perfect Son of God submitted himself under the law and was crushed on a cross so that we can be adopted as sons and claim our sonship. Now, we've talked about the how, but why? Why you? Why did God send his spirit into your heart? Why was it your passport he gave a stamp to? Why was it your name he put on that certificate that he deserves? Look at verse 6, slowly, and really ponder upon what it says. Why did God send his spirit into your heart? Notice, it doesn't say, in order to make you sons. What does it say? Because you are sons. You know what this means? This means God gave you a stamp that says son. God put your name on that certificate. Even before you came to Christ, he has always viewed you as a son. 
He did not give his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, in order to make you sons. He gave his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, because to him, you are sons. You have been sons. He's always viewed you as one that is to inherit all that he is. Let's now look at verses 1 and 2 in this light. Okay, let's reread verses 1 and 2 in this light. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. See, you're still an heir. You've been a child. It's just sometimes you live no differently than a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, you already own everything. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Before we received Christ, we are under the burdens of the law. Our relationship with God was as if it was, it was uh, stifled by the law and our obedience to it. But this whole time, God has always viewed you as a son, as a child. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we've been children. When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Before Christ, when we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world, when we, had, when we had the law as our guardian and manager, when we lived like slaves, verses 1 and 2 says you've been a child all along. You've been an heir. You've been a child. Sometimes you live no differently than a slave, but you're a child. You were children. You were enslaved by the principles of the law, but you have been my children. This is significant. Why? Because it tells you that God did not die for you in order to make you sons. God died for you because he has considered you as his son all along. He died not to create sons out of slaves. He died to free sons out of slavery. Let me repeat that. You see the distinction there? He did not die to make sons out of slaves. He died to free sons out of slavery. Why are you son? to where God sent his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father? Why was it your passport he gave for a stamp? Why was it your name he wrote on that certificate? Why should you gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. I don't know. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why you? Why me? Let that question mark be the banner that you live under until the day you die. Let that question mark drive every single decision you do. Why? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2 says. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Why? Why you? Because of pure, utter, total, sheer mercy. Look at John 1, 1 John, I mean, chapter 4, verses 10 to 19. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. Why? Mercy. Why? Grace. Because he has considered you a son, he died for you, and he released you out of slavery. And now we can have the nerve to claim the full benefits of our sonship without being prideful, but with sort of a humble astonishment. We have the courage to cry, Abba, Father, boldly, loudly, not with arrogance, but with a joyful wonder. Because it's his will to be our father, not ours. It's his work that made us children, not ours. 
Live as children, heirs to God, because of what he has done. Approach him boldly, more than you deserve, because Christ has earned it for you and given it to you. Walk in obedience, because it's who you are. Hold fast to your identities in the midst of the heights and depths of success and failure. Because he has paid a huge price to free you out of slavery. He has paid a huge price to allow you to live your life as who you truly are, the sons of God. If we have received Christ as Lord and Savior in our lives. Claim it. Live it fully. Don't let the elementary principles of this world enslave you any longer. Claim all of God for who he is because he is your father. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why you considered me a child, an heir. I don't know why you consider me son to where you sent your spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, if we have received Christ as Lord and Savior. But this I know with all my heart, that what you have done for me has paid my ransom. It has freed me from the bondage of slavery, from the elementary principles of this world that says I can only claim from you what I have earned. You say no. You can come crying to me anytime, even on a bad day, because you're my child and I'm your father. You can be protected from the successes and failures of this world because I'm your father, you're my child. You can obey me, not as something you do, but as who you are because I'm your father and you're my child. By grace, we have been saved through faith and none of us can claim any credit for it, but only sheer mercy. Thank you, Father that you consider sinners, wretched people like us, sons. Nothing about us deserves it. Nothing about us even wanted it. But you, your desire for us is stronger than our sin. We praise you and love you and thank you as Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing this last song.
Have we taken the full benefit of our sonship? Have we claimed of God more than what we deserve because of Christ? Have we been protected from the success and failures of this world to bring us too high or too low? Have we been obedient because it's who we are, not just what we do? If we haven't, then hear this grace of Christ, that you are sons, not because you believe in your sonship, not based on how strongly you believe in it, but because of how strongly he wants you. And he's done that on the cross. Receive it, claim it daily. You have full access, full rights as sons. Receive now your benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in his peace.